Welcome back to Frivolous Comma, everyone. My guest today is J. Diane Dotson, the science fiction, fantasy, and horror author of the recently published The Shadow Galaxy, a collection of short stories, as well as The Inn at the Amethyst Lantern, coming out later in October 2023. Diane is also the author of a four-book space opera series, The Quest for Sun Saga. She holds a degree in ecology and evolutionary biology and spent several years working in both ecological and clinical research. She's also a science writer for online publications and is an artist. Thanks, Diane, for making the time here. I really appreciate you jumping on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so before we started recording, we were talking about horror, the, the that whole market. And I, you were saying that it's kind of, it's it, you're seeing a resurgence around it. I am. It seems like we're entering the golden age of horror on the page and on the screen, and I find it very exciting. And based on my own personal experience, the horror community is incredibly welcoming and fresh and accepting. And I, I just think it's possibly the most exciting genre to be writing in right now. So I'm happy to be dipping my writing toes in and I will be working on a full length horror novel later this year. Oh, wow. That's super exciting. Um, so I, it's funny you say that because I was uh, flipping through uh, Rotten Tomatoes, right? Just while looking at what kind of movies are out and stuff like that, shows are out. And there's a whole spate of like new movies that are all horror movies. Yeah. And I was like, what is, what is happening now? Interestingly enough, I don't enjoy watching horror movies. I like to read the horror stories. I like to read uncanny, a weird fiction. Yeah. And it's interesting because I got a chance to read shadow galaxy Oh, thank and you. you are tip, you know, dipping your toes into that quite a bit. It's very, yeah, very yeah. interesting. So, let me ask you this, and we'll, we'll kind of circle around here. But did you always were you always drawn to that kind of uncanny, weird fiction, or was it like science fiction and then fantasy, and like kind of did you have like a linear path, or is it kind of circular there? It's a triangular path because I love all three equally, and I feel like I especially adore areas that kind of blend them. But in terms of horror, I came to it at way too young an age. I had much older siblings and I pilfered their bookshelves <laughs> and read Stephen King way too early as a young kid, a preteen. And then I also watched movies that I should not have at too young an age. And I have this, there's this post I wrote on my blog about why John Carpenter's The Thing still holds up. And I saw The Thing when I was super young and I saw it alone in a cold basement with the lights off, which powerfully shaped my experience with that movie. And it really shaped a lot of my writing because I eventually, pardon the creaky chair, um, I eventually started going back to that movie again and again as a point of, it's a masterpiece. And I love the sort of claustrophobic and yet existential threat, you know, and the sort of gaslighting and psychological horror in addition to this body horror and, and then the sci-fi aspect, it had all of it going on. And still to me, one of the few films that disturbs me on a deep level, it doesn't scare, like I don't get scared with movies, but that one just unnerved me because there was a plausibility to it mm. that kind of stuck with me. And, you know, as I went on and studied science, I was like, you know, 
this is getting more interesting. Eventually I studied genetics, you know, so then it was, that was even creepier to kind of look back on that and think what this thing was, the thing was capable of. But also I watched Alien and Aliens, Aliens being a more action flick, actually saw it first and then went back and watched Alien. And then I really loved that, that cold, empty sort of space haunted house feel to that. So I was always in that genre. I was always pushing myself to, to tolerate different things. And eventually, you know, went on to the scream teen queen kind of thing with nightmare on Elm street. Loved that. My gal pals and I were obsessed with that movie, watched it many times, you know, and then like in the late eighties, um, mid to late eighties, gosh, we really had some fantastic horror movies. And I kind of feel like that's what's happening right now that we sort of had a, a lull and now we're, we're on the up and up again. And now it's this, outrageous stuff just so much fun um all different kinds something for everybody i love it i love that there's whole streaming networks like shutter that are taking this and running so i feel like this is just great time to just jump into horror and it can be like i've written in the shadow galaxy and in other spaces um gothic horror cosmic horror just sort of like mountain horror you know like appalachian because i'm from east tennessee and that can be twisted either way into wonder or into horror. Uh, it's in, now, now do you, the, I have, I have a perspective on, um, or I guess an opinion on like whether or not I like, like very overt horror or like the psychological horror. Do you, do you feel like you gravitate towards uh, uh, one or the other or a, a different flavor of that? I would say most of my writing is more psychological, but, you know, you do have that physical element to it. Like in the story, Topaz Sundered, for example, I mean, that's extremely claustrophobic and very unnerving. And, you know, that's a, someone said, uh, having read it, that it was um, some Twilight level story. So, um, sorry, Twilight Zone, not Twilight. <laughs> Difference there. Totally different. <laughs> but uh, Twilight Zone kind of horror with Topaz Sundered. And then um, I really like digging into the feeling of slamming a door, like in a couple of the stories, they're just boom, it's, that's it. You know, you're like, well, that can't be good. You don't know, but you're assuming the worst, like the tunnel at the end. Yes. Um, but I also, you know, I like monsters though. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the Questers on Saga, my indie space opera, there's a monster that basically metastasizes throughout the galaxy and takes over people and any being and it feeds on suffering. So it keeps you alive just so that it can feed on your suffering. So that's called Payosh Tohan. And so mm. I love, I love like the, both the body horror aspect of that and the psychological horror. I, I guess the intersection of the both, if you can do it is great. Psychological is more, more fun because I think it lingers with you longer and it's, you know, one, but then again, I look at the thing and it's got both. And that's, again, right. I keep coming back to that masterpiece and Alien as well, for that matter, because, I mean, obviously Ripley's having to deal with some gaslighting with Ash. And, oh, my gosh. You know, that yeah. sort of psychological aspect of being alone out in the middle of nowhere with nobody to help, you know, so. I think for me, the the, the hardest kind of horror to to read is, and, and, and it takes me a while, like I will I will not be able to go through like page after page without like taking breaks from it is, is, is that psychological horror, especially between two people where there's like malice, like just, yep. imme- like, like this 
immense malice just like pent up and it's just like trickling out of one person towards another person. That is, that is, a, that is a level too deep. Uh, and it takes me a while to kind of get through those stories. Yeah, there's and, something I'm writing right now has that aspect where the villain is completely gaslighting the heroine and, and kind of creeping literally into her mind uh, over time to mess with her, you know, on a deep level. And that it's hard to write in a lot of ways because so, it's kind of freaking me out. Um, and like, I, I've had strange dreams from writing it, which tells me that I'm on the right path to scare people. <laughs> <laughs> if it's scaring me. I'm scared myself, yes. But it's, you know, this is supposed to be a near future sci-fi thriller, but it's kind of got that sort of black mirror uh, with a tinge of X-Files thing going on. So I'm kind of digging in on that one. But the, the horror novel, the true horror novel is later in this year that I'm working on is, is got the gore and the splatter punk, but also super campy and over the top. And I can't wait to play with that one because that one is very surface blood and gore and junk everywhere. And that's going to be a very different vibe. Um, I want to I want to get into uh, you know how you write, but one of the things I was uh, before we do do that, you know, the one story that really uh, stru- stuck with me is uh, Annihilation by Jeff Vandermeer, his uh, Southern Reach trilogy, because that is you know an alien yeah. horror, uh, but again, it's a very it's a very cerebral kind of horror, and it's uh, you know it's it creeps like, like, you know, it's a trilogy for one. So it like tells you, you gotta, you gotta have some staying power to get through it all. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know, I, I read the book and then I watched the movie and both, and I feel like the, the movie also did, did a pretty good job. Not, not, not to suggest that it was better than the book at all, but that the, you know, that creepy sense of we're losing ourselves or we're losing mm-hmm. something, uh, that, that sense of, you know, um, losses was very, very, uh, very well done, both in the book and I felt like in the movie as well. I don't know if you've read uh, Annihilation. That's on my bucket list and boy, does my TBR just start to teeter at the top, you know, but it's, uh, it's definitely, it's been recommended to me a lot. And I kind of don't want to read it right now because both the books, the the current one I'm writing and the one coming, there's a little, if you combine the two, it might be very similar to Annihilation. So I kind of like staying away from it until after I've finished those and get them out in the world. So I don't want any sort of influence on that. I, I know that might sound weird, but I also just oh, frankly just don't, I have two novels to finish this year. I don't have the time, you know, I'm already, I can't really accept a lot of arcs, but I have two, three that I agreed to do. And that's like, I can't do any more than that. So one of these days I will get to it. I've heard such great things. So I'm excited. <laughs> Maybe so, that'll be my reward at the oh, end of the year. Yeah, be, get done with it, and then you can just go on a, re- a reading binge for I a while. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, there you go. Um, so, kind of talking about how you're writing some of this, you know, because you write very uh, like a very uh, wide variety of stories, and, and Shadow Galaxy is a great example of how wide those stories can be. I I enjoyed reading all of them. Oh, um, thank you. That's great. I, there are several that stuck stuck out to me specifically because I will I will say like the writing you, you have a wide style of yeah. writing as well, like which is play. pretty amazing. Um, I'm not sure if I've come across too many authors who can do both different, you know, style and different co- type of uh, content. And 
do you do you feel like you have to be in a particular place for yourself to to write a specific kind of story or does this pretty natural flowing for you I think it's natural because I've always written ever since I was a kid and I've, I've loved to just play in all the playgrounds of stories. And I just, to me, it, it just, it comes and I just do it. You know, the, the stories there, I have this enormous list of IP over, I think it's almost 80, 80 projects. Um, some in, some are complete, very few though, you know, only like a, a 10th of them. So maybe that's not right. Yeah, no, that's about right. About a 10th. So, um, and they range from straight up body horror to cosmic horror to gothic horror to epic fantasy to romantic fantasy to hard sci-fi to sci-fi space opera fantasy. And, and then there's the Appalachian stories, which are all over the place and, and then true fairy tales and some children's stories. So, which I'm also writing more of um, more children's stories and, and my first YA book comes out later this year too. And that has an element of horror in it as well, but by and large, it's sci-fi fantasy. So I just find like, I write what I love and what I want to read. And that is all the things. As I said, I there's a quote I said on Twitter weeks ago that said, you know, if Ray Bradbury can do it, I'm going to do it. If Stephen King can do it, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write whatever genre I feel like. I'm coming for all the genres, you know, and, and I'm bleeding over into other, you know, non-speculative fiction bit by bit. More mystery is kind of coming out in these various works. And in fact, you know, like Heliopause was a mystery as well as sci-fi fantasy. Um, but I also really like noir. noir. So, I, you know, I want to dip into that. I've got a kind of a noir with a sci-fi hint that I would love to finish one day. And I love humor. So I keep getting told again, you know, like, why don't I write more comedy? And so that the horror book that I'm working on later this year will have a lot of comedy and be extremely super raw and mean and, and, and hopefully very quotable because <laughs> it's so much fun. I just, you know, like I said, I write what I want to read and what I love to read and bring it on. I want all of it. And do you, do you have multiple different projects going on at the same time or do you feel oh, like yeah. you have to like thematically keep them in, 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 No, I've always got a lot of irons in the fire because, but my day gig, I'm a science writer. So oh, okay. that's completely different in a different sort of mental space. And then I also do art, which is another, I kind of go back and forth between the three as time allows. Um, art right now is taking a back burner, but I'm getting back to it more to do some illustration. But I just, you know, I, I kind of just try to expand my mind by trying different things. Some of them may work, some of them may not, but I'm going to try either way. And that's what I always recommend people do is just, just try it, you know, just write it. There's the worst thing that happens is somebody says no or whatever, but you can do it for you, you know, and that's fine. Is that, do you feel like when, as, as where did you, where did you find that? Um, and I asked this question of, of several of the authors too, is where did you find these, um, I guess the, the strength to be confident in what you're writing and that, that you were writing for yourself first? Like did that, was that, has that always been there for you? Do you feel oh, like yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've been writing fiction for decades. Uh, I, I, Oh, I was such a nerd. I still am. But when I was a young kid, you know, I started writing kind of a nerdy comic called Son of Blob so I could cope with the Blob's horror. And that was a comedy. But then I went on and I started writing long form and came up with some space operas that are that were the bones of what is now the Questers on Saga. So I wrote and rewrote and expanded that universe and wrote glossaries and maps and 
indices and everything about those worlds I was building and some of them quite literally worlds, planets. Um, and I felt like I had started so young that it was just a natural thing that it was, it was something I, I actually couldn't disentangle from myself as if it were part of my DNA. And in some ways it is because my father was kind of a constant storyteller and he ended up doing an indie book himself. My mother worked in a publishing press and it was just seemed like I was kind of destined to be there. And so I might, I have two other siblings who write as well. Um, so it's just, it's, it's kind of in my DNA. It's just seemed natural to me. And it was a good way for me to cope for being lonely, being out in the country, not having much to do. And I, I was a nerd that didn't fit in. So I just made my own universe to fit into. It's fascinating. I think that um, the question I have is, do you, did you have, it, it, as you were growing up, or did you have like a, a group of, of folks that you um, got together with to write or, or, you know, bounce ideas off of, or this was pretty solitary for you? It was very solitary. Um, the only thing that I had, I had an English teacher who was also a science teacher. So she was powerfully influential on me. And my other friends just, they weren't into that, you know, like I was in the middle of the country in East Tennessee and I was a weirdo, you know, I was the weirdest kid in my grade. And, um, I was the one that was always telling stories and illustrating them too, um, and illustrating galactic fashions, all kinds of, you know, um, I, I was very lonely. Um, my siblings were much older than me and had moved on and I grew in the country. So I basically, like I said, I invented my own universe and I just, I just kept at it. We didn't have, this was the eighties. We didn't have social media. We didn't have, I lived in the country and I had no access to a writer's group, you know? Mm. So I just, I just built my own universe. And once in a great while I would write into stuff like Starlog magazine <laughs> and um, just write these little editorial letters. And then I struck up a conversation because and this was how we did it back in the day, right? We didn't have Twitter. Uh, there was a guy who had, these awesome editorial letters, and I believe it was in Starlog, about the Aliens universe. And this is before Ridley Scott came back in and did Prometheus, right? So, um, and he would, what he would say was fascinating. I was like, I literally, I don't know how I did. I had found a way to contact him and we started a pen pal relationship. And he was much older, okay? But like he wrote these detailed, I still have them, detailed letters about, you know, xenomorphs and, and he would illustrate them. And it was I, that was like my only thing, you know, and other than that, I would just try to nerd out with my guy pals and um, cousin over like Transformers and He-Man. And and then I, I don't I was just making it up as I went along. I didn't have anything. I did not have a writing community, in mm -hmm. fact, until I moved to San Diego and that I started attending that 2017 Writer's Coffee House at Mysterious Galaxy Books. And there's different ones around the country, but that one is chiefly headed by Jonathan Mayberry and sometimes by Scott Sigler and Henry Hertz and Peter Kleins. So that was where I finally found my tribe, so to speak. Mm -hmm. um, and we were all at different stages of writing, those of us in the audience. And so I met other great writers who are now some of my, my besties, you know, like Mia Duong, who is a fantasy writer and a nurse, amazing gal. And um, Dennis Crosby, who has uh, urban fantasy, Austin Farmer, a musician and a writer. So we had, and Tom Milasso, you know, like all these great people, um, Rusty Tremble, 
so all these great writers meeting and just finding this welcoming community. And we kind of just blossomed from there and started putting out our work. And I finally had people who could read it, you know, so um, that was really cool. And I had an editor friend, he's still my friend, um, Nathan, who was one of the dads at my kid's school and we were always volunteering. So um, he encouraged me to finish Heliopause and, mm. um, I always call him the man who saved Heliopolis because I had kind of given up on that whole space opera story. And then, you know, he caught wind of it and he's like, well, just, just finish it. Just do it. You know, like, um, so I did. And it just kind of went from there and built my confidence up. And when did you start Heliopause? Like when you, when did you first, you said you started having the bones for a Heliopause a while back, like when you're, well, the questions on the saga in general. Yeah. Itself is a little bit different. So I had basically written the foundation of what became Ephemeris, the second book, and Luminiferous, the final book of the four. Um, when I was 13 and 14, I finished two novels full length, and my English teacher reached out to publishing companies on my behalf. And I've talked about this on my blog before. Um, one of them wrote back and said, well, you are very young. And I still have that letter and posted a pic of it on my blog. You still, you're very young. You might want to hone your writing craft, that kind of thing. So I kind of chickened out, but I kept writing that story in the margins of my life. I went through high school, went through college, went through a lot of tumult and a lot of moving around. I moved across the country, but I would still go back and rewrite and react to the story. And there was one point where I was like, you know what? I have not told how the humans got out there to begin with. So then there comes Heliopause and there comes, I dream about Forster. I dream about him walking down this hallway on this squishy floor in this space station. I was like, there's the guy. There's the ancestor of this other character that I'd already written. Um, I won't spoil who if you've not read it. So, um, but so that, and, and then that way, like the other characters that were later in the books um, meet him. And, and that starts the whole thing running because um, I knew that they had to, there had to be an origin story for the descendant. Sure. You know? And so in ephemeris. And so I went back and wrote and wrote that. And, but that was, the story was already there. And there were a lot of other things that were influencing it. Like I, I got really creeped out by some of the listening stations. Um, and like the, I guess it was around 2013, 2012, um, you know, that were coming out with these weird codes and tones and people oh, right, right, yeah. Super creepy, right? So, like, I kind of incorporated that, but Forster was basically whole cloth from a dream, um, and I was like, "Oh yeah, there's the there's the the ancestor of this character." Um, and then, so his interaction with two other main characters in Healy Pause is very essential to the whole story, from you know from the start and through all of it. What I what I liked about the Questers on Saga is that. The books are mostly you can read them essentially standalone. You can um, each, and, literally each of them. Probably you could. You get more out of it if you don't, but you definitely could. Hundred percent, and I, I think that was that that was really I I really appreciated that because I think I, I accidentally ordered Ephemeris first, and, and then and then absolutely made it first. Yeah, yeah, and then um, but then I realized okay, so Heliopause is is a prequel to it effectively, and I was like, oh wait, so so then. So now I'm, I, I haven't finished all of them. Uh, I'm, uh, about, I won't spoil anything for you. Uh, yeah. So I haven't, I haven't gotten to Illuminiferous yet, but... Um, You're in uh, for a ride. Uh, I see. I'm, I, have a, I have a big TBR, Diane. I have a big TBR. If, if um, this, if that book, 
people say is like Game of Thrones meets Marvel meets Star Wars. There's a lot going on and it gets pretty epic. So you will very much appreciate what I've done in that book because I set up in Heliopause, there are a lot of hints for what's happening in Luminiferous. There's, there's, I've plugged it all in and that was on purpose. I planted a lot of Easter eggs and seeds that you wouldn't know unless you reread the saga. Mm-hmm. You'd be like, oh my God, there's that. You know, there's that whole thing. So in both Heliopause and Ephemeris, there's a lot of that going on. And of course, at the beginning of Ephemeris, I, I have a note to readers that say this takes place before, during, and after the events of Heliopause so that you get but it means more to read Heliopause and to see where one particular character, how how that character evolved. Because in Ephemeris, when you meet them at the beginning of that book, you're like, he's a jerk. How did he end up being halfway decent? You know. That's you know. um. How do you how do you um think of like the the structure of your story? Do you usually have like a sense of your structure, your story, uh, kind of given to you, or do you feel like you're you you're unraveling it as you go? Like, do you? I know the whole story ahead of time, and I just write it. Is that right? It's it's up here. It's in my head. I know that may not be super helpful, and like I don't. The only outlining I do is when I'm actually working in the manuscript, I will do a framework of like, you know, sometimes I'll actually, I recently started doing this just for speed. I'll actually go ahead and add in all the chapters and then go fill them in. Um, And that's a more recent thing that Tori Eldridge authored, you know, that's what she did. You know what? That's really good because I'm on a deadline now. Now that I'm doing traditional publishing, this is a whole new ball of wax and I have to hit the ground running. Anthony Johnston, who wrote Atomic Blonde, has a great book about writing. And he was saying, you know, hammering that you need to just get this done. You need to get down your zero draft. And that has become a way for me to do it. But the story is all here. You know, it's it's the detours along the way that you figure out as you write. But I know the story. I know the ending of everything I write. Um, and the characters, they get into, into hijinks that I don't predict. But, you know, other than that, I know it. <laughs> Yeah. Now, did you were you did you always uh, write like that ever ever since, or did you um did you feel like there was a portion of like the you know honing your craft that kind of led you to where how you write today? Honestly, I've done things so much my way because I never read a book about writing until right. I did actually an audio. I Antony's um, was audio book, and I just was listening because I really like him, and and his he's he's a machine. You know, he just puts out a lot of books. And I noticed that those of us who write really fast, most of us have journalism backgrounds, which I find very interesting because we operate on a level of like, you have a deadline and you need to get it done. So I don't let anything derail me from that um, within logical parameters, right? Unless there's life circumstance. So I always know from the outset and I just, uh, that's how I've always written. Like with the questions on Saga, I knew how that was going to end when I was 14, you know? Um, and so I just finally sat down and wrote it as an adult. It took a while for me to get there. Like, like I said, I had a lot going on and, and I write better when I'm not in a, in chaos, you know, like I, I need order in my life to be able to sit down and write. Um, so it's just, that's just how I do it. I don't, I think every, every writer, I always, I do my own interviews of, I have an author chat on my YouTube channel and I interview a lot of authors in various yeah. genres and scientists. Um, and I'm always asking their method without coming out and asking the pantser versus plotter a question, which is very popular. But I kind of like to get 
the sense that we're all we all have our writing craft fingerprints. And I know that some people really want to dig into the craft and how it's done, but I feel like I did all that in grade school, that I was, you know, I was ready to rock and roll, you know, from it's, the go. It's interesting you say that. I have a, I have a niece who is uh, 12 and she's working on her third book right now. Awesome. And she's like going all the way through. And I'm like, I, I don't know how you're doing it. Um, it's pretty amazing that, at, cause at that, I mean, when I was 12, like I didn't have, I didn't know how to craft a story to, to, to save me, but um, it was, it was very, it's very interesting to me that I, I feel like she has a very uh, strong sense of what her story is, what direction she's going to go uh, take it in. And, you know, she has uh, word limits apparently for uh, every week that she's trying to hit. And I was like, that is a level of dedication that I did not have when I was younger. So it's uh That is really awesome. Kudos to her. Yeah, well, I'm going to I'm going to tell her about you because uh the fact that you had uh, f- uh full-length novels uh set up by by the time you're 13 or 14, that's uh that's pretty that's uh, that's right up there. So um Thank you. Yeah, I th- so tell me a little bit like Growing up, one of the things that when I was when I was reading uh, through Shadow Galaxy, I found that your um, the section of the books where where you have the Appalachia Tales from Appalachia, that was very very. Those are very detailed. I, I feel like um, they were they were short stories, but they were very very um, deep, uh, and I feel like how much has does your uh, growing up kind of affect your stories. I feel like there's, I feel like I read a lot of how you grew up in those stories. I think that's a fair assessment um, because I did spend much of my youth in the country. You know, there's, there was that aspect of paying very close attention to nature, which was um, basically where I preferred to be rather than inside, uh, although I did love watching my cartoons and my movies. Um, I just much preferred being outside all the time, beyond when I should. And, you know, I'd, sometimes I would stay out in the colder seasons until my fingers just couldn't move. You know, like I loved being outside, I loved pretending, I loved having adventures. Um, and, and I would often sort of just come up with whole stories outside all the time. That was kind of just the way I dealt with things was to go for long walks and go for adventures and ride my bike, just like a kid from stranger things. And yeah, that was just there. It's interesting that you said that because it seems like the Appalachian stories are resonating with a lot of people. And that makes me happy because there will be more. Um, And also I wanted to kind of memorialize that upbringing because I, you know, it was a special time of my life being out in that country. And I would maybe have stayed forever, but uh, my parents didn't want to stay there, um, move back to the town. And then I was off to college. So, um, you know, it just that place lives forever in my memory. And I guess I want it to live on the page too. And some of the characters that I experienced there, I want them to live forever as well. And, you know, my heart will always be entangled with Appalachia. Um, and when I went back in 2020 to live there for a year, I was able to see parts of it I'd never seen before as an adult. Um, and I was also able to experience it with my kids, which was really fabulous. So they got to get a feel for what it was like to be out in the woods and do things like that occasionally. And 
I thought that was great. Um, it also figures a lot in much the same way as maybe Derry, Maine does for Stephen King or Greentown for Ray Bradbury. I actually grew up in a place called Gray. I'm not even kidding. G-R-A-Y. And so, but it was a colorful place for me and I want it to live on. And you know, it's just, it's finding its way in der- different cracks of what I write. So I'm just letting it, I'm just letting that legacy and my ancestry seep through. So I'm so happy that you enjoyed it. And I hope everybody else does too. And, and there's an interesting relationship. I feel like I don't, it, the, the, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how you had, you know, there's a lot, there's a, a horror in, uh, you know, the being alone, being by yourself, being kind of secluded from uh, other people and things like that, that kind of makes right. its way. It, it almost, it does lend itself to, to that sense of horror or, you know, the uncanny or the weird as well. Oh, it does. And it will more, although, you know, like I said earlier, it's the wonder and the horror because there's a lot of wonder and mysticism and, you know, the fairy tale aspect coming through of, of East Tennessee, Western North Carolina, Southwest Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, that whole region is an ancient, ancient region. And I like to play with that thought on different levels. There are a lot of ghost stories. In fact, there's a, there's a international ghost story festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee every year. And, um, you know, there's the whole Appalachian, particularly Southern Appalachian region has so many great urban, they're not urban, sorry, mountain myths. Let's call them mountain myths and legends and spooky tales. And you're all brought up in that. And even in the, the my hometown, not in Gray, but um, the main town, Kingsport, has a lot of really spooky places that everybody kind of went as a rite of passage as teenagers. And um, so that was a lot of fun to kind of dig into that, which I, the tunnel at the end oh, is yeah, based I was just on the tunnel. Yeah. My hometown with that legend. Um, <laughs> so there's all kinds of that stuff there. So I really feel like, yeah, it, it's just all coming through now. I'm just letting it. It's but I will cool. expand, though, however, on other places I have made my home, like the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. and California. I'm writing a lot of fairy tales around the Bay Area, which to me is a magic place that I adore and always have. So, But now that I'm in L.A., there's a different aspect that will happen with my writing as well, I think, because I'm, I'm learning sort of the backbone of LA that most people don't see. And that's really fascinating to me. The, uh, is, is evening in Fogvale, was that, is that influenced by uh, the Bay area or anything like that there? In some ways it is, but also Seattle where I lived several years. Um, I really liked spending time by the waterfront and then um, in terms of, the definitely probably more San Francisco though, in the end, because of the fog. And I had a special relationship with the fog. I kind of view San Francisco's fog as, as a living thing. And in some ways it is because it's carrying a lot of uh, interesting things in it that help giant trees like redwoods grow from an ecological standpoint. It fascinates me and my degree is in ecology. So, but it also to me was just, I would sit in my little apartment in San Francisco and put my, you know, I'd lean on the windowsill and I'd look out and I would watch the fog tumble and curl over Sutro Tower every day. And I, I loved the fog. I thought, I, I think it's the best thing, like on the West Coast. <laughs> it is truly to me almost a spirit, you know, an, an interesting, um, necessary thing. And such a quirk of landscape and geography and geology all mixed together 
to help it form. So yeah, you, you will see more stuff that is nodding to San Francisco, but also I love the coastal Carolinas, particularly the Outer Banks. And a lot of love, I love the legends there. And so, so, so Night of Longshanks is definitely a nod to that. Um, and I love lighthouses, which of course, my book coming out later this year, The Inn at the Amethyst Lantern, that lighthouse basically is a purple and white version of the Cape Hatteras light. So all these coastal tales, my father was a sailor. So I always felt like, you know, I, I felt really at home and at ease um, with you know, the shoreline and the waters of various places. It's, um, tell me about your, your degree in ecology and, and, and the other one's evolutionary biology. How did, I feel like all of this is, is, is one big, large sphere, uh, for you. Everything kind of comes from it. Everything feeds into it. Um, did, were you always interested in that? Did, did how you grew up really affect, uh, that choice to go into that? Yes, although when I was a young kid, I was obsessed with astronomy and astrophysics, and that would have been my other path. And I, having spent so much time, I spend a lot of time outdoors at night stargazing. I formed an astronomy club with my neighborhood kids when I was age 10, and I had a newsletter, and we would meet, and I would teach them about the universe. And I even talked about exoplanets, which at that point, we had no proof yet that they did exist. Um that I had, was very heavily interested in that, but because I was so steeped in the natural world and learning how everything fit together and figuring out how I fit into it as well. And I love animals so much, but I love plants as well. And I was obsessed with caves and things like that. So it seemed like that just kind of evolved. I had begun college thinking I would be maybe go veterinary medicine because of my love for animals, but I kept getting pulled over to the animal behavior and to the ecology side. And I had these terrific professors in ecology and like Dave Etnire, ichthyology master, um, McCracken, all these great University of Tennessee professors. Just, I was like, oh my God, this is it. This is what I should have been, you know, leaning towards. So I kind of raced and changed over and finished with that. And that allowed me also to dip into some very interesting sub uh, genres that almost became minors like classics. So I was, you know, I, there's a heavy, heavy influence of uh, Greek and Roman mythology on the Questers on Saga. There's a direct analog of Galadea as Persephone, Ariad as Hades and Demetron as Demeter, mm-hmm. even down to the spelling of that one. But, you know, I played in that universe a bit. So I translated the Aeneid in Latin class and then I really liked the ancient Greek and Roman architecture, but I, I dipped a bit into psychology as well and anthropology. So the degree allowed me to stretch out. Like there was this great class called Zooarchaeology. And hmm. that was absolutely fascinating. It was like the intersection of, it was like magic. It was intersecting the classics and the ecology and the zoology and archaeology is really cool. That was one of the best classes I ever took. And I, I think I'll probably draw upon that a lot in my writing um, more than I have done. But yeah, it definitely all, it was all building toward that. And you're right. It is definitely part of the sphere. I think that my interest in space. And so now I've interviewed um, planetary biologists, you know, like, so that's, it's kind of full circle, right? You know, I'm kind of dipping back and going, in fact, the current work I'm working right now 
uh, the main character is basically at a university in ecology. So it's starting to get a little on the nose, right? Yeah. And, and, and she's encountering this horrific situation. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's all there. It's all coming together. So you, you mentioned uh, you've, you've interviewed some folks uh, in planetary biology and you have your background in evolutionary biology. I, was, I want to, I want to uh, ask you, are you familiar? I just got this book in the mail. Um, it's called Life Beyond Us. And it is, um, it's all about astrobiology and essays and stories and, and speculative fiction stories. Um, and it's uh, by the European Astrobiology Institute. Are you familiar with this at all? Uh, I think I've heard the title, but I don't have the book. It definitely sounds like something I would enjoy. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a Kickstarter yeah. and it took, it took them a while to get, get through it, but it's, it's a, a decent tome of a book, but it's lo- lots of short stories and essays around astrobiology and so on. So I'll, um, I'll definitely oh, send yeah. you the link and I'll post it in definitely. the notes as well, because I think it's, it'd be right up your alley. Uh, I have not had a chance to read through it. Um, th- my interest came through because as I've been working on my project, part of the thing is, you know, just doing the research and understanding, okay, am I making, am I creating, you know, um, believable, uh, aliens and so on and so forth. Right. So right. The, I was very interested in, 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 seeing this. So it's finally here. I have not had a chance cool. to crack it open yet, but, uh, I will put that in there. Um, one of the things that I wanted to ask is, you know, the, the, do you do a lot of research for your work or is it, is it, do you, do you tend, is it mostly for like really hard science fiction uh, or more like historical uh, research and so on? Like, how do you decide like how much research to do? And I, that's one of the questions I get from some writers um, right. and so I'm kind of throwing it back out there. So. Well, I'm heavily biased because I'm a science writer and so research and because I have a science background. So between those two things, I'm always doing research. Um, and to me that, that is a natural thing and it's something I enjoy it's something I encourage. And what's really great about it is that a lot of these scientists would love for you to reach out to them and ask them, you know, I, I keep hearing from some people like, I wish this author had come to me and asked me about the physics of this or about the geology of this or whatever. Right. So, um, and I, you know, I have written an article on the SFWA website about the ecology of world building and how you can incorporate that for science fiction, fantasy, and horror, just as things to think about to make your world seem more realistic. I definitely feel like for me, research comes natural because it's part of my job and it's part of what I've always loved to do. And it is important to a point, but not necessary for everything. And one of the great features of interviewing different sci-fi, fantasy, and horror authors is that everybody has a different approach to that. And you could create a masterful book without having done a whole lot of research, you know. But it does, I think it adds to the strength of it. Um, For hard sci-fi, I think it's probably a little more important to do that research um, if you're already working in some sort of field that's connected to that science, then you kind of have an advantage. But um, I think, I think it helps, but I, I, like I said, I know people who write great space operas who have a literature background that don't, you know, and that removes a sort of bias that might actually strengthen their work and help them think of things that we might not be able to think of because of their vivid imaginations and they're thinking outside of that science box. 
So honestly, it's it's kind of coming down to like, what are you wanting as a writer? Do you want to project a sense of knowledge of the material or are you trying to invent something completely wildly different? You know, so that's a personal choice, I think. But I encourage it because I think it's fun. You learn so much and you make really great connections and those can be pretty valuable later on, you know. It's uh, it's interesting you say that. One of the things, one of the challenges I have is I am interested in like the the story and like going through a story. Whereas like some of the folks that I have as uh, you know alpha readers or so on, they're very much into the world building and they will get yeah. really wrapped up into the world building. And I was like, that's true, but I do want to kind of get to my story as well. And right. Like there's like these and and. What I've what I've what I've come to is like a, a little bit of a middle ground. It's never complete, obviously, but enough backstory for something. It's never going to make the light of day, right? It's just for me to have right, right. as a as a reference point, kind of thing. Um, I do I do some of that too, and you know, I for me too, it is all about the story. And then if for because I don't like getting too lost in jargon. I think it can take you out of the story. Some people love that. Um, I kind of lean a little more towards the story, but giving you nice little snippets of hints of things like um, with heliopause, like I don't break down exactly how Mandira research station works on every level. I've thought about it. You know, I've, I've actually illustrated it myself in a cutaway and all this, you know, and, and I've thought about the gravitation. I've thought about the energy um, conservatory producing food and things like that. Some of it I hint at, but I don't go into great depths. Um, sometimes I talk about this stuff on my blog, though, including the station. And so that might be worth exploring for people who want to know more. And eventually, if I were to make a guide to the questers on the saga, I would probably just, you know, tell everybody what I've already known all along, you know, yeah. and you can spell it out. But I also like for readers to have a playground to give them the breadcrumbs to follow the trail to whatever part of that forest they want to wander into. coming towards the end of this, I wanted to ask you, like, it sounds like you, you give, do you give workshops? It sounds like you, you do really well with giving workshops. I have given workshops on social media for writers at, at Chimera and at Bristol Con in, in the UK. Hmm. I have, I might have some panels coming up this summer or late spring on ecology and world building. And it is something that I want to do. So, you know, that, that, that's definitely of great interest to me. Uh, definitely want to look into that. And, you know, it's a potential other gig that would help me financially, too, to be quite frank. So sure. that is something that, that I am considering. I was for a little while, my Patreon supporters, I would post little videos on, on craft and things like that. But I think I really want to expand that into an actual course mm-hmm. and series of workshops. So I welcome any ideas for something that might be helpful, then maybe I could put that together. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, as from, from frivolous's standpoint, obviously we're, we're trying to expand, um, you know, what we're doing for authors. Cause the, the, the idea of frivolous is it's for readers. Yes. But it's primarily for writers as a, as a, as a space for them to create and to kind of explore for themselves. So, you know, as we, as we kind of grow into that, we'll definitely keep you, keep you in the loop. Oh, that's great. As that's a, you know, as a, as a parting thought, I, I guess a couple of questions I have is, do you, do you have something that, you know, um, when, when you're talking to other writers or, you know, you know aspiring writers, 
it's it's a classic question, right? What are some some parting thoughts you would have for folks who are exploring the genre, the style? You know, I guess words of words of experience um, that you would impart on them. Well, first, you have to keep writing. You have to sit down and actually do the work. And that is what each writer has to face every single day. We sit down, we have to do the work. Um, We don't have to write every day. I do want to say that my opinion on that is that you don't have to do that. It is some, some writers feel it's essential. I'm not one of them. Write when you can, write in the margins when you can, and just be consistently going back to that and finish it. And that's the main thing. Finish the work. Don't get caught up in how good or bad it might be. Our first drafts are always horrendous for literally every writer. And that's the editor's job to fix. It's your job to go back through and strengthen that book. But, you know, you have to finish it and you have to pass it on. But, you know, definitely get to writing. There's nothing to lose. Your stories are important. Get them out in the world. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Uh, Dan, I feel like we could, we could have a part two because there's a, you know, there's a number. Of I welcome that. Of notes. Got another book coming out in the, in the I know. fall. So. Yeah. So tell us about that. What, what do you have coming okay. out so that folks can keep an eye out for that? Obviously we'll call that out too. Yeah. As you know, the shadow galaxy is available now and it's a collection of short stories and poetry in multiple genres. But I have my first young adult debut novel, the science fiction fantasy lunar punk story called The Inn at the Amethyst Lantern. It arrives October 24th from Android Press, and it is set in a night-living future utopia that comes under threat from someone from our time. So it is sort of a climate science fiction, but mixed with a lot of fantasy and wonder. Jenshin or Jen Lightworth is the main character, and she does not want to be a leader, but she suddenly finds herself in that role of leading this sort of scooby gang of teens. It's got a flavor of Stranger Things meets The Goonies meets Nancy Drew, a little bit of Star Trek Wrath of Khan thrown in, a little bit of The Thing, and it's just a delightful world of people and animals and scary, scary creatures um, and I just, I can't wait to share it. The cover will, I think may happen in April and it's quite beautiful. It's a really fun world. I hope I can write more of it. There is a short story connected to it that you can read right now. And that is called Midnight Serenade on Solar Punk Magazine's website. And the events of that story are related to what happens in the Inn at the Amethyst Lantern. Awesome. We'll definitely call that out. This is exciting. Thank you. Uh, Diane, this was this was a pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot.